Eschaton. Hello and welcome to Eschaton. This is episode number 12. This is your deep dive into the last days. I am your host. My name is Sam Liebke here on At A Church Radio, and we love to have everyone join us for this study. I appreciate everyone who watches these videos and shares them or was podcast. This is actually our first one where I'm, I'm on screen for the video. So we got a little bit of visual element going on. You can see some of my own expressions and I share with you the verses as we're pulling them up here. Uh, this study has been so fulfilling for me. As I said, this is episode 12 and really we're just scratching the iceberg, scratching the iceberg, scratching the tip of the iceberg or the surface of the tip, something like that. Anyways, I, I have a, I have here, I would show it to you, but I, I'd mess up my camera and then I'd have to move it back. I have four sheets of paper that have, uh, I've, I've printed out and then I've also handwritten on there well over a hundred, a hundred, I think it was well over 130 passages, separate passages that I personally identified as I read through the scriptures that have either the pattern of eschatology or specifically mention the end times in some way. So, and that's not including the whole books as far as Daniel and, and Revelation and those kind of things. So we've got tons of material, tons of stuff to go through, and I'm just praying I can get through all of it before the Lord actually returns. <laughs> Amen. So we're going to jump right into it this week. This is item number six as we're going through as we broke down Matthew 20. If you want to listen to that, you can go back a few episodes. I don't have it in front of me, but a few episodes back, I would say about five or six episodes back, we did our overview of Matthew 24, how it breaks down. And this is our sixth item, which is Matthew chapter 24, verses 32 through 35. And this is what most people would label as the parable of the fig tree. What's interesting about this is, well, we'll get into it. It's also paralleled in Mark 13, verses 28 through 31, paralleled in Luke 21, verses 29 through 33. So just as an aside, I think I've mentioned before that I'd like to get my notes on here. Uh, part of the reason I haven't done that is because I have all of my notes I keep handwritten, and that's just a, much easier for me to work that way as I'm working through the scriptures. In fact, I do a lot of my study work offline. I know a lot of people enjoy uh, the online resources, and I love them too, but I wanted to get into the habit of grabbing the information offline, so I'll, I'm doing an extra episode as well. might record it today or in a couple days about all the resources that I have on hand that I use personally alongside the Holy Spirit, you know, just guiding and showing and directing my eye as I read through the passages. Uh, so all that to say, I don't have this stuff typed up. So I, I need to get I need to get on that. I, I've got a whole notebook going here that I need to get typed up. So I'll be typing that up slowly but surely. And then I'll be putting those thing, materials available on our At A Church website and linking everything back and forth. So you'll be able to get a hold of the notes if you want to look at the notes. Uh, all right. So the parable of the fig tree. Let's read, this, read this passage first before we get into this. Starting in verse 32. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And I will mention today, this episode, I will only be getting through verses 32 and 33. The next episode will do verses 34 and 35. And because these are some of those little bit debated passages, verses, and there's a lot of wild interpretations, I just wanted to take a slow down a little bit going through these to make sure I, I caught everything that the Lord has here and that we avoid the pitfalls that bring us into things that the Lord does not include. So the first thing I wanted to mention is, you'll see here this, learn a parable of the fig tree. In the Luke passage, I believe it just says that he, he told them a parable, and so it just starts off with him speaking the parable. This uh, this word parable, uh, as you can see there, I've got it highlighted in Strong's, it's G3850, it's in our Greek, parabole, 
it a similitude, a symbolic or fictitious narrative of common life, conveying a moral, uh, apothegum, an adage. It's from the Greek term parabolo, which means to throw alongside. So we can see right there from the root word that it has the idea of comparison, right? So you throw something alongside something else, you can compare the two, one for one. This thing is so long, and if I throw down something else beside it that's so long, I can see in between the two of them, I can see which things match and which things don't. So we get the idea immediately just from the word itself that this idea of a parable, yes, it's symbolic, but it's designed, parables are designed to be compared. They're designed to be understood. They are, in some senses, they hide information, but in some senses, they as well are designed to be, that information is designed to be brought out, to be sought out, to be understood. Uh, let's go into a couple uh, things here. Of course, it would take way too long. You could do a whole series on just the parables of Jesus. I've heard people preach through all the parables, and they're marvelous and amazing, all kinds of good stuff in there, and, and that's not really the topic we're studying. But I just want to mention, outside of the Gospels, because the Gospels is the main place where you see Jesus' parables show up, and uh, I, I just was studying in and around those things, and I'll leave that to someone else to do the study through the Gospels on the parables, but I wanted to just mention quickly where we see it mentioned in the New Testament outside of the Gospels. So let's hop over to Hebrews, book of Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll start in verse number 6. It says here, Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people, the Holy Ghost this signifying, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. So this is obviously talking about the temple, talking about the tabernacle, and of course the book of Hebrews is amazing comparing the sacrifice Christ made as the sacrifice and as the priest to the Old Testament rules and rituals, right? For the law and the commandments and all these things. Here in verse number nine, this word figure, as you can see here, which was a figure, is the same word parabole. It's, it's our parable. So he's saying the Holy Ghost signifying the way to the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing. So while the first tabernacle, the first tabernacle that they were ordered to create was yet standing, it was a parable. It was a figure or a type for the time then present in which were offered gifts and sacrifices. So it's not the real thing. The tabernacles that we've seen, uh, the tabernacle in the Old Testament that they carried around and the temple itself, once it was constructed, are still parables. There's still figures, types, and shadows of the actual temple, which we can read about in the book of Revelation. You see uh, different people have visions of it throughout the scriptures, is actually in heaven itself. It's the, the actual temple, the actual tabernacle of God is in heaven, right? The throne room, all those things. The other place we see it show up is Hebrews 11, chapter 11, verse 17. Let's hop over there real quick. Hebrews 11, verse number 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. There we see again this word figure is used in verse number 19. It's parabole. That's our, our term parable. So we see how this word parable is used of full stories as well as used of figures and types. So we can see it show up that way. We're also going to look in the Old Testament. Uh, I'll just read a few of these, but I'll read off for you all of them. In the Septuagint, of course, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we see this term show up as well. Let's go back to Numbers chapter 23, starting in verse number 7. 
That's Numbers 23 and verse 7. It says, And he took up his parable and said, Balak the king of Moab hath brought me from Aram out of the mountains of the east, saying, Come, curse me, Jacob, and come, defy Israel. Now this is, uh, starting in verse 5, it says, The Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth, Return unto Balak, and thus thou shalt speak. And he returned, he stood by his burnt sacrifice, he and all the princes, and he took up his parable. So when Balaam shows up, this is what he tells. It's that same word, parable. In Greek, in Hebrew, you see it's the word uh, mashal, which means superiority, a pithy, a metaphorical nature, a simile, right? This is a parable or a proverb. And we'll look at the word proverb in just a moment. But this is the same thing when he says he took up his parable. This is, in other words, the tale, the story, the metaphor, the type that God gave to Balaam to give to Balak. All right, so we see that here. It's also in Numbers uh, 24, verse 3 and 15, and then verses 20 through 23 in that same chapter. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 36 and 37. Let's hop over to 1 Kings 4, chapter 4, and look at verse number 29. 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse number 29. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding, exceeding much and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east country and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezraite, and Heman, and Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all nations round about. And he spake three thousand Proverbs, and his songs were a thousand and five. And he spake of trees, from the cedar tree that is in Lebanon, even unto the hyssop that springeth out of the wall. He spake also of beasts, and of fowl, and of creeping things, and of fishes. And there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all kings of the earth, which had heard of his wisdom. So here where he says, spake 3,000 Proverbs, we see in Hebrew, it's our same word from before that was that was used, translated as parable. It's the same word here, translated proverb, and it's a saying, it's that mashal. In the Greek, it is that term that we got, the par- parable, right, which is the idea of a proverb. It's also in Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, translated as proverb. So we, here we see the idea that within these cultures and within these, these language contexts, the idea of a parable, the idea of a proverb, or, or a metaphor, or a simile, or a maxim, or a, you know, all of these things, they were very, very much interrelated, if not a one-for-one stand-in for each other. These were all related concepts, right? So we need to understand that when we go into the parable of the fig tree, then, when we jump back to Matthew 24, Matt, when learn a parable of the fig tree, he's saying this is a parable, this is one story, this is one metaphor, this is one comparison you get from the fig tree. And so the reason I'm going into all this, all right, is because the fig tree and and other parables like it in the New Testament, especially when it comes to eschatology, eschatology is, is rife. Eschatology interpretation, when people say we're studying the end times, the last days, we're studying prophecy, it is full of crazy, weird interpretations. People will grab the fig tree and they'll say the fig represents this and the tree represents that. And then then the branch represents something else. And so that's how we know that Russia and China are invading in 2037 and blah, blah. And, and suddenly you're just way off the rails and none of it's based in anything scriptural, whether the language or the culture or the context or the Bible itself. It's just kind of crazy stuff that people come up with. And then pretty soon you're setting dates for when the rapture is going to happen. And I mean, you can <laughs> you can get all, you can get all out of whack. So the reason I wanted to to touch on this idea of a parable is that this is a comparison, this is a story. He's not saying that this is necessarily giving us a date for any specific thing. There are places where specific numbers and dates show up in the scripture, but more and more, I've mentioned it multiple times, if you study uh, biblical scholars, they'll say, they will reference how 
and we'll mention it some more as we go on here, how in the in the biblical culture, whether it was the the in the, in the Near East there around Jerusalem, around Judea, whether it was the Hebrews or even going into the Greek culture, the Aramaic and all of that, their language is a reflection of their culture and their culture is very much tied up in, I, I would say it's it's deeper and more nuanced in many ways than our our modern Western American culture that we know of, or even, even in Europe, you know, where everything's based around science, everything's very granular, everything's very specific, everything has to have a, an exact one-for-one representation, everything has to have a one-for-one description and everything has to be measured and counted and weighed. Whereas their culture would use those things, but that's not the approach they took to life. The approach they took to life was much more about emotions and and using the soul and understanding things. And which then, what's interesting is then that does give you and fits into scientific context and all of those things. But we cannot always treat scripture as a scientific textbook because that's not what it is. It is it conveys truth and truth is absolute and truth does not change, but truth is also not always measurable. Truth is not always a scientific digit, you know, amount of something. That's not always truth. Truth that can be interrelated to that, but anyways, I belabor the point. But just wanted to nail that home, and that's why I'm slowing down on these passages, is because that's part of the reason why people get so messed up, is because they're approaching it from a modern context. Let's look at another fig tree parable, and this was one, because of this, I, uh, I I was digging into this fig tree concept a little deeper, because this confused me a little bit. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, is another place where we see this other story show up about, or, or this isn't the one I got confused about. We'll get to that one later, though. Don't worry, I, I did <laughs> I did look up every time fig tree shows up and tried to include all the relevant references for it, um, or figs in general. All right, Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 1, this is another uh, another parable, and it gives us a little more insight into the culture of how they approached fig trees and all of that. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Were those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell, and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. So here's Jesus, and he's talking about repentance as he often did. Then he speaks this parable to explain or to elaborate on what he's talking about. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, verse 6, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Here we see Jesus using this this parable of a fig, of another parable of a fig tree, and he's explaining how the fig tree must bear fruit or it will be cut down. And that's the the man who planted the fig tree, right? That's how he treats it. The dresser of the vineyard, the guy who actually takes care of the fig tree, he's the the worker, the pruner, right? The the vine dresser. And and of course, already if you're familiar with the scriptures, you know Jesus talks very often about this kind of language when he talks about the church. He says he's the true vine. He talks about dressing. He talks about pruning the vines. Well, I think we've that already even in our study, uh, but it shows up again and again. Ideas about harvest, right? Uh, a lot of these things are mentioned throughout the scriptures because Jesus left these these items, he created these items in, in some senses specifically to give us illustration of how he feels about us, about how he feels about repentance, as he says here. He's saying, after three years, nothing profitable, nothing fruitful has come of this tree, so he's wanting to cut it down. Now, it's interesting when I studied out fig trees a little bit, they 
take about three to three and a half years before they produce a, a good crop of fruit. So they will be growing before then, they will produce fruit before then, but it won't be a crop that you could consider worth keeping, right? It'll, it'll just be a few here and there. It wouldn't be an actual harvest until about three and a half years. And obviously, again, if you're familiar with eschatology, three and a half years is a time period that shows up multiple times. It's half of the seven year period, et cetera, et cetera. So I found that very interesting. I'm not going to make any specific <laughs> uh, interpretations of that because, again, I think it's very dangerous. But you see how the language of the fig tree, the understanding of the fig tree gives us more understanding about the parable. We'll go back to the parable in light of all this and talk about it, what it really means, uh, which honestly basically just means what it says. But we'll, we'll get back to that. All right. The, then the other fig tree that we see with Jesus interacting is Matthew 21. This is not a parable. This is an actual thing that happened. Matthew chapter 21, verse number 17 jump in here. And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. Now in the morning, as he returned into the city, he hungered. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon, but leaves only, and said unto it, Let no fruit grow unto thee henceforward forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How soon is the fig tree withered away? Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, If ye have faith, and doubt not, ye shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. So Jesus here, you know, explains why he did this. And he says, if you have faith and doubt not, you can do this to the fig tree, do something like this, right? You can accomplish the same thing. You could move a mountain, etc., etc. What was very interesting is when you first read this story and you don't understand, again, culture, context, fig trees, you might come away from it saying, that's kind of mean, that's kind of harsh. It says right there, uh, he saw the fig tree and it didn't have anything on it. And then he cursed it. When we see that fig tree show up again later, we'll talk about it a little more, but it, it was actually not the right season for the fig tree. So it doesn't make sense to us why he would curse it. And uh, I'm getting a little ahead of my notes. So I'm actually, I'm actually going to get jump back into the notes. We'll come back to this, this story though, in a parallel passage about it though. So just keep that in mind. All right. Just to give a little more, cause I'm, I'm really supposed to be talking about parables, not the fig tree itself. Just, just to give a little more about parables. All right. Parables, uh, that word parabola means com in Latin means comparability or parallelism. We talked about that already. Parables, of course, distill eternal or spiritual truth into a memorable and digestible illustration. These stories are easier to remember and distribute. You look at something like a fig tree and you say, okay, it does this, it does that. I can watch it happen. You see, you know, something when something's compared to like the sun rising and setting, it's something that everyone knows about, everyone can see. And it really becomes almost a compacted, almost a, um, uh, like a zip file of an a, a, a archive, right? A compressed version of a larger truth. Because when you look at that thing, it's still what it is, but within it, it contains information that then sparks your interest, sparks your brain to remember the larger, broader truth that God is implying through that, that type, right? And we see this like with the fig tree. We have to be careful though, because of course we can read more into the text than what is actually given. Parables are often accompanied by their interpretation. Again, if you study parables throughout the gospels, Jesus very, very often will say the parable and then immediately after someone will ask him or he'll just tell them, here's how you interpret this parable. This is what this means, etc., etc. Typically, the simplest face value interpretation is the most accurate. Parables are the, the danger with parables is to overinterpret or to underinterpret, to say, well, it doesn't really mean anything. He was just kind of saying, look at this, it's kind of nice. Well, Jesus didn't say anything by accident, but he also said exactly what he wanted to say. And uh, so we have to learn context, of course, scriptural context, first of all, historical context, his cultural context gives a lot more information into these things. Jesus's parables are very often built on examples in nature. Uh, sometimes he references customs of the time, sometimes it's historical events, sometimes it's possible true life stories. And so 
not every parable is exactly the same. You can't use the same rubric every time for interpreting them, but they're very similar in their form, right? In that he says he'll tell a little story or he'll give a little illustration. He'll talk about something that happens and then he'll go in and go back and give the interpretation. Or sometimes he'll leave it up to the reader or the hearer to sit there and mull and muse over it. Of course, this was a popular a popular uh, format for Greek philosophers during this time and the times thereafter. Parables, you know, if you go Aesop's fables are very similar to Christ's parables, you know, it's kind of a uh, a very similar format where he tells a little story and then kind of leaves it up to the reader or the hearer to go through and discern. He may give a little moral, you know, bit tidbit at the end, but he gives it up to the leader, the reader to discern, well, who's, who represents what or what should I get out of this? And it's more gives you something to chew on than just telling you straight up facts and information. Again, different in many ways than our Western modern context. The esoteric philosophers uh, often considered parables to be what they call acroamatic ciphers. In other words, they would be deep wells of hidden wisdom. And this is where I, I would dare say they get into, of course, esoteric philosophers have all kinds of issues, Gnosticism, all that mess, but they would often read more into what's said than what was actually said. So they'd say, well, because he used this first, then he mentioned this, then that's telling us some deeper relationship. And that's that's when people get into these crazy things of saying, well, you know, the fig tree represents like a star and and then you know, it aligns at such and such a time period and blah, 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 blah. And while sometimes some scriptural passages have those kind of contexts, a fig tree is just a fig tree, right? It's not represented in any other way in scripture unless it's teaching us something about something else. But the fig tree is a fig tree in, in the parable. All right, so let's get into the fig trees. All right, I kind of teased it a little bit earlier. Uh, fig trees, of course, the first time we see them mentioned is interesting. It's in uh, Genesis, in used by Adam and Eve, you know, all the way back, Genesis chapter three, starting in verse number seven, or I guess just in verse seven. And woman saw the tree was good for food, so she eats the fruit. And then verse seven, the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So fig trees have, you know, a particular type of leaf and they must have, for some reason, thought that these were the best ones to make these aprons, as as it says here, these coverings, you know, kind of skins or belts or, you know, to cover up their nakedness, right? And of course, then God comes and he's like, why are you wearing this? What's going on? Obviously, God already knows. And you know the story if you've read Genesis, Genesis chapter three here. It's interesting because those are a a very, anybody within the biblical context reading this later would know what a fig tree is, would know what the leaves look like, would know how difficult it would be to make aprons out of fig tree leaves, et cetera, et cetera. And so you can kind of sense almost the sense the sense of humor here of the, the silliness of them trying to cover up their shame, cover up their feeling of sin, of shame over something they've done, over sin, recognizing evil with fig tree leaves. And if you look up fig tree leaves, I don't have a picture pulled up, but if you look up fig tree leaves, it's not exactly the first thing you'd think of to try to make clothing out of. But that must have been what was on hand. Uh, it's also a fruit that is very popular, very uh, grows well throughout Canaan, Numbers chapter 13, verses 21 through 25. So let's go over to that, um, the cursed fig tree. Let's come, jump back into that since I mentioned that earlier and we, I've been, we need to get back into that. All right, so let's go to the Mark version of this in verse chapter 11. And here's where things start to get interesting. Mark chapter 11, verse number 12. It's also, as I said earlier, in Matthew 21. All right. On the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, so he was in Bethany and he's traveling, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. And then if you jump down a little bit, it also is shown in verses 20 through 26. They come back, and in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from 
the roots. And Peter calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Peter, you know, pointing out the obvious. And Jesus answering, said, saith unto them, have faith in God. And here you see how this this parable, if you will, this, this story that happened, this uh, instance, illustration that he was doing really for himself, but as well for their benefit, is about faith. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed, be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. When ye stand praying, forgive, if ye have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. So here we have Jesus curses the fig tree, they come back the next day, and it's cursed, and it's withered away very quickly, and it's not providing, it will never provide figs again. Now, why did Jesus curse this fig tree? Well, when you study fig trees, you find out that in the autumn, the going into the winter season, is when you would see them beginning to produce, or, or would be producing, what they call figs out of season, or green figs. Now, these green figs, if they last throughout the entire winter, all the storms and everything, come springtime, when is the, the harvest time for the figs, those green figs and the leaves and everything would be ready to harvest, and then those would be, really, those actually end up becoming the sweetest, most coveted harvest of figs. They do have a harvest in the autumn, in, in the fall, you know, before winter comes. That is that is the, uh, I always get it messed up, but I believe that's the early rains. So during that harvest time, they would get the figs, they would get a good, you know, bushels of figs, baskets, whatever. But then, and throughout summer, you know, there, there would be harvesting of these figs. However, in the springtime, the only figs that would be there in the springtime are the ones that had started during the wintertime, during the the hard time, the dark time, right? What's interesting is Jesus, when he shows up at this tree, looks at it and sees that it's out of season, right? It's not, so this is during the winter time. This is at some point during fall, autumn, winter, past the point of harvest, past the point when the fig tree would be producing fig tree, figs regularly. But because there are no figs on it, no green figs forming, Jesus knows, looking at it, will come springtime, there's not going to be any figs ready. That spring harvest won't come from this tree because during this time, when it should be forming those early figs, those figs out of season that are going to develop into figs ready for harvest in springtime, there's nothing on there. He sees just leaves. So he knows in the future, this tree will not produce fruit because it's not preparing to produce fruit right now. And so he says, well, you're cursed then because you're not preparing now to be ready for the harvest in the spring. So you're of no use. You will just be sitting, taking up space. As, as the other parable says, you know, he talks about it cumbering the ground, right? It's pulling up nutri nutrients from the other plants and it's, it's just taking up space, taking up dirt. And then come springtime, if there's nothing there, well, then that was just a waste the whole time as far as actually being a profitable, fruitful tree. So the fig trees with just leaves and no green figs means no fruit is to come in the spring. This is very interesting because Jesus often compares the church, he compares the end times to these ideas of vines and trees and fruitfulness, and we'll, we'll go back to our Matthew 24 verse and talk about that in context here in just a moment. All right, so we have these green figs, green winter figs. If they remain holding on through the winter and they ripen first come spring, these are the freshest, the most flavorful ones. Of course, this will be roughly three and a half years after the tree was planted. You can already see the parallels and the way this feeds into showing us some of the types and some of the, the patterns, the sequences going on during the end times. The first fruits, of course, are those fruits that have endured through the dark times, through the hard times. There would be lots of rain. There would be lots of uh, cold going 
going on during the winter. If these green figs that were not ready yet, but were still growing from the tree, if they held on throughout that entire period until the spring when the sun's shining and the harvest time comes, then they will be figs that have endured. Again, we see in Revelation multiple times that he talks about he that endureth through the tribulation, through the hard times, through all of the things going on. If you're a green fig through the tribulation time, and then you come to the point of harvest at the end of the tribulation time, at the end of the cold and the darkness, then you will be the first fruits of that tribulation period, right? You will be the first figs ready, and it will be the sweetest, most satisfying harvest for the one who is harvesting. Again, it's just chock full of patterns and comparisons showing about Jesus, about the end time harvest, etc., etc. We've talked about some of these things already, so I won't I won't belabor the point. Uh, first, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 6, verse 13. Revelation chapter 6, verse 13. Some of you may have thought of this passage already. This is the fifth seal, oh, the sixth seal, excuse me, starting in verse 12. I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black, a sackcloth of hair, the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. The heaven departed as a scroll when it's rolled together. Every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, everyone's hiding themselves and fleeing. Verse 17, the great day of his wrath has come who should be able to stand so this is the things going on during the sixth seal right before or leading up to the the actual appearing of jesus to wage war on mankind as i say the great day of of his wrath against mankind what's interesting is that he says the stars of heaven here fell into the earth even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs so we see here just another clue as to the sequence of what's going on here this is during the dark time right those untimely figs those figs out of season are the figs that are growing on the tree during the darkness during the cold before the sun comes out for the spring and the summer and everything gets all glorious and wonderful again and and comfy right and then you can harvest. All those things go together. Well, these stars of heaven are falling just like untimely figs. In other words, they're being shaken and they are apparently not going to be bearing fruit when the time comes at the end of this season, at the beginning of the spring season. And so when the fig tree is shaken and those un- those untimely figs don't hold on, they don't endure, they they let go, then they will drop to the earth. And of course, they're, they don't really produce any fruit. They're not fruitful come harvest time. So that's another comparison he makes there. It's kind of a little bit of a cross comparison, but you kind of see the interesting things there. Isaiah 34, verse number four, I believe is a cross reference for that. Let me check that. Make sure I'm quoting that right correctly. Isaiah 34, verse number four, and all the host of heaven shall be dissolved. The heavens shall be rolled together. Yes, the same event as a scroll. All their host, host of heavens, shall fall down as a leaf falleth off from the vine. Here he talks about the, the grapevine as well. And it's a falling fig from the fig tree. And of course, he says the sword shall be bathed in heaven, etc., etc. So this is talking about the return of the Lord, uh, the day of, of the Lord, etc., etc. All right, let's keep moving here as uh, I think we're already 30 minutes in and I got to wrap this up. Um, yeah, okay. All right. This, like I've said, this study is just amazing to me. It's so dense. I once I do start getting my notes online, and you can see them, you'll understand how I'm really just cruising through everything that's in here just to try to get keep it under an hour, let alone under thirty to forty minutes. Uh, all right, summertime means harvest has come. That's in Proverbs chapter ten, verse five; Jeremiah chapter eight, verse twenty; in Amos chapter eight, it mentions a basket of summer fruit. Uh, Amos chapter eight, verses one through three, and that's more than likely figs and other related types of fruit. So, if you want to read a little more, you can read those passages get a little more of an idea. So all of that in mind, uh, before we move on to the next thing, let's hop back to Matthew 24, 32, and let's read. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. So we know that summer is nigh. We know that the time for the harvest of fig trees, we know that the time of those fig trees, that those figs that have endured, we know that the time for the sun to come out and shine, etc., etc. All of that's going to happen in conjunction with 
a fig tree's branches getting tender, right? It's putting out shoots. It's put it forth leaves, right? Just just like any tree, as you see, as spring approaches, right? As as the cold eva- gets away and it starts to warm up, then they start to come out from their dormancy, their hibernation, and you see buds starting to happen, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This all coincides with everything leading up to this, right? All the previous episodes we've talked about, all these things, the birth pangs, the all of this stuff going on. He says, when his branch is yet tender and put it for leaves, you know that summer is nigh. If you're watching the signs, if you look at the fig tree in your yard or whatever it is, you know, in your in your garden every day, eventually you'll start to notice, hey, look, summer must be coming. Springtime is, is arriving because the fig tree is preparing itself for that time. And it's the same thing when we look at all these signs, we look at all the things happening in the world. As we see those things begin to increase, as we see those things, especially the specific signs, as he just talked about in this passage, leading up to his return, you can know. He says, you know that summer is nigh. You know what's coming next and you know that it's happening soon you know how soon you are relatively because of the signs that are happening and that's everything i'm going to say about that let's move to verse 33 so likewise ye when you shall see all these things know that it is near even at the doors so what is it he's talking about uh first let's talk about this doors concept because this is uh this was another interesting little study i did in jewish custom your house's door is of course where your public life and your private life meet And that sounds really basic. You're like, well, of course it is. But you have to keep that in mind because when he says something's at the doors, that's what he's saying. Doors in general separate the outside world from the inside. So someone or something being at the door or at the doors, at your door especially, it indicates that there's about to be an interaction between the inside and the outside, between the intimate and the public. There's about to be a conjunction or something, a crossing over or a conversation happening between those two things. That separation is about to be opened or is about to be taken away, even if for a period of time, between these two things, the inside and the outside. The doors are about to be opened. Uh, Usually this would be something like a meal or a conversation. Again, if you've read Revelation, this sounds awfully familiar. Revelation chapter 3, verse number 20. Jesus is talking to the church in Sardis. He says, these things saith he hath seven spirits of God. Uh, Sorry, we're down to verse 20. This is actually to the Laodiceans, I believe. Yeah, Church of Laodiceans. Verse 19, he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Now, I'm not saying that this verse is necessarily the same, talking about the same event as we see in Matthew 24, verse number 33. However, as a cultural uh, custom, I want you to look at this verse and understand that this is the type of thing he's talking about. Out, right? If someone's standing at your door and knocking, hears you knocking at the door and opens the door, why are they doing that? He says, I will come into him, we'll sup with him and he with me. So if you hear the knocking, if you hear someone at the door, you open the door. And why do you open the door? So you can interact with them, so you can have a conversation. And here in this example, he's saying so that I can come in and we can have an intimate relationship with each other. We can share things with one another. We can actually expand on the love that we have for one another. We can eat together very, very often, supping together, breaking bread in the Jewish culture and in, in the Near Eastern culture there was a sign of deep friendship, was a sign that you actually were connected to each other, right? That you had a relationship. If you're allowing someone into your home, your private dwelling, and that means you trust them, you trust each other, all of the things that go along with that. So that's why I wanted to bring this up, that this thing that's at the doors indicates all of those things, right? To specifically the audience he's speaking to, which are his followers. In other words, the return of Jesus Christ is going to be the same type of event described here. Him standing at the door, he's knocking. We hear the knocking happen all throughout the tribulation period, right? Leading up to when the door is actually opened and he steps forth to establish a further relationship with us. All right, so what is the it talked about? It says, even it is near, even at the doors, right? Let's jump back here to Matthew 24, 32. 
or verse 33, know that it is near even at the doors. Well, we can get a clue to that if we jump to the parallel passage in Luke 21, Luke chapter 21 and in verse number 31, Luke 21, 31, jump down. So likewise ye, this is the same the same passage, you know, he just talked about they when they now shoot forth, you see and know of your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand. He talked about the fig tree, verse 31. So likewise ye, when you see these things, all the things he's just been talking about, all the signs come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. In the other passage we saw, it just said it is nigh at hand, even at the doors. So he's saying the kingdom of God, the arrival of the actual messianic millennial reign, all of those things is nigh at hand. When you see all these things come to pass, when these things have been fulfilled and these things have all been said and done, then that means the kingdom of God, the actual Messiah, Messiah's reign is about to happen. Another verse that's interesting in this context or this idea of being at the door, things about to happen or things that are at your door, James chapter five, verse number seven, he says, be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Here again, it's interesting how we see these concepts nearby or in the same verses, right? About the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, being at the doors, etc. Unto the coming of the Lord, behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth. Here we have again, the husbandman, the one who's dressing the earth, dressing the vine, dressing the fig tree, waiting for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he received the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Now here we see it's a negative thing if you are condemned, right? He says, beware, grudge not once against another, lest ye be condemned. If you're condemned, the judge standeth before the door. So here we see that connection again uh, that we see during all the types of salvation throughout the scripture that the same event, the same happening, the same day, the same hour is going to be salvation for the just and judgment for the unjust at the same time. So the same person that was standing at the door waiting to come in and sup with you and have a deeper relationship with you is the same person that if he's standing before the door of someone who is not one of his children, someone he has a negative relationship with, then he will be the judge for them. Jesus is the savior of those who love him, those who respond to his call for salvation, and he is the judge, he's the executioner for those who have rejected him. He is both at the same time, all right? And that's another thing we always have to keep in mind. Genesis 18 tells the story of God approaching Abraham as he sat in the tent door. And uh, just for sake of time, I won't go into all that, but that is mentioned with the tent context in the Old Testament, especially because it's common to sit in the shade of the doorway. So the doorway is, again, that transition point between the inside and the outside, but it's also also during the heat of the day when you were in a tent uh, environment, when these were nomads, right, traveling around, then that was the shadiest point because you'd have that, that tent flap, you know, pinned up or however it was set up to create a little bit of shade there. And so that's why they spend time there. So you may see that show up in the Old Testament in the same thing. Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 through 23. Of course, another thing about the judge, about the Savior, both coming to the same door or it happening at the same door, the Passover involves applying the blood to the doorposts so that the angel of death would not enter through the door and kill the firstborn. And so we see, the, again, the connection of at the door is where this happens. At the door is where judgment or salvation or intimacy, whatever it is, is waiting to come to fruition, is waiting to actually happen. And uh, so we're gonna actually going to cut off this episode there. It's already been, I think, about 40 minutes. So I appreciate everyone who has joined us so far. Please like, share, subscribe, all that stuff. This will be going out on YouTube. This will be going out on uh, Share to Facebook. And this will be going out on our podcast feed as well, Out of Church Radio. Uh, if you have a chance to subscribe to Out of Church Radio, please go check us out on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a positive review so people can find us, uh, that we are spreading the gospel and talking about prophecy and eschatology and all these things. I will be coming back for the next episode where we'll be talking about the next couple verses. Uh, we'll give you a preview here 
here. We'll just read those real quick. Matthew 24, verses 34 and 35. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Another heavily debated passage. And then heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. And we'll learn how those things start to connect through to verse 34. So thank you so much for joining us. This was Eschaton episode number 12. And God bless. I hope to see you guys again next week. You are listening to your apostolic radio at a church radio.